morning. It is so very, very good to be here. This is a good community of people, uh, and this still feels like home to me. So thank you for having me back. Um, I told you uh, last time I was here, uh, three weeks ago, about our wedding, uh, and now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the birth of our first child. <laughs> Sorry, you just got to bear with me. Anybody remember the birth of your own first child? Yeah? <laughs> A little bit um, exciting, uh, maybe a little bit traumatic, uh, completely out of your depth. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what to expect. So anyway, uh, Sarah, my wife, and I were expecting this child to be born. We had no idea what sex uh, it was. Um, and about a month before the due date, which was, as I remember, March the 10th, um, Sarah started to have contractions. And we thought, yes, baby's coming soon. And so we went for marathon walks to kind of get everything going. And we did that for about a month. And March 10th uh, came and went. And uh, it was about two days later that things really kicked in. We actually went, um, uh, we walked down to what used to be Bean Brothers in Carisdale and had something at about 11 o'clock at night and then walked home. We basically stayed awake all night counting the contractions, you know, and measuring how close they were getting. So finally in the morning we went in. Well, of course, the baby uh, wasn't born until about 7.30 that night. Um, but it was so exciting. And I got to hold this little girl in my arms and pray over her. And then Sarah almost immediately started calling her by a name which we hadn't quite settled on, but she just <laughs> went for it. Now, I was actually the one that had suggested the name, but I felt like it was maybe a little bit too out there, a little bit, I was a little too edgy. The name was Anastasia. I'd only ever known of one Anastasia, and that was the Romanov uh, princess, uh, who uh, apparently was killed, though rumors circulated for years and decades that she actually had not been killed by the Bolsheviks, but was still living. Uh, and I think it was about 20 years ago, they finally proved actually she was killed. But that was the only Anastasia I knew, and I felt a little bit out there. But we went with Anastasia, and uh, she's Anastasia still. <laughs> but the reason I... Love the name was not because of the Romanov princess, but it was because of Greek class at Regent College. And as I was in Greek class, we were studying all these different words and verbs and nouns, and I came upon this word, which is anastasis. I went, ah, Anastasia comes from anastasis. Anastasis means, well, let me tell you, it's a compound word. It's got a prefix and then the word itself. Anna means again, stasis means to stand. Anastasis means to stand again, to get on your feet, to rise up. It's the word for resurrection. Oh, wow, what a wonderful name to live under. It is the word that's used throughout the New Testament. It is one of the words that's used throughout the New Testament to speak of resurrection. It actually appears in the passage that we're looking at today. But there is another word that's used throughout the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels, for resurrection also. And that is the word that reverberates through the passage that we're looking at today. 
We come to John chapter 5. You as a congregation have been uh, delving into John's gospel, which I'm so glad of because I love John's gospel. You've been going through chapter by chapter, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4. You've taken a portion out of each as you've gone. And now we're at chapter 5. And today, instead of taking a portion out of the chapter to look at, I want to take a theme And I want us to focus on the theme. And the theme is resurrection. So the story starts, uh, or the chapter starts with a story. And the story is of a man at the pool uh, in Jerusalem, right near the Sheep Gate. The pool is called Bethesda. There seems to have been folklore at the time that indicated that uh, this pool would get stirred up. And when it got stirred up, the understanding was that it was an angel that was doing it. And if you got into the water first, you would get healed. Now, whether or not that was true, and whether or not there was actually any effectiveness from getting into the water, we just don't know. The chapter doesn't give us enough detail. But the point is that the people thought that was the case. And that's why they're there. They're all gathered around the pool waiting for something to happen because they all want to get healed. That's why this particular man is there. What we're told is that he is not able to walk. Likely he's crippled in his legs, though we don't get the specific details. But we are told that he's been an invalid for 38 years. It's a fairly long time. Now, my sister, Sue, about two and a half years ago, uh, had a... um, kind of funky accident to her right knee. Any of you remember that? Uh, She uh, dislocated or tore her quadriceps tendon. Well, I didn't want her to get all the limelight, so a week later I did the same thing (laughs) in a completely different way. She did it to her right knee, I did it to my left. And uh, she got surgery immediately. I had to wait a week, and my leg was put in a splint. And then my surgeon did the work, and uh, Sue's surgeon decided that she should uh, have her leg immobilized for a little bit and then begin to move it. My surgeon didn't want that to happen. He wanted me to keep my leg entirely mobilized for three months. Now, I've actually got good movement since. He just wanted the tendon to really uh, re-adhere and and get strong and healthy. Uh, But the fact is, uh, to be immobilized for three months was a pain, (laughs) I I, I was limited. I couldn't drive the car. There were so many things I couldn't do, and it was three months. This guy was crippled for 38 years. That's a long, long time. A long, long time. And so he's at the pool, and he's there because the rumor is that the water gets stirred up, you get in, and you get healed. But as it turns out, he's actually not all that hopeful. He's hopeful enough to get himself there, but he's not actually all that hopeful because he doesn't actually have anybody to to help him get into the pool. Remember, he's crippled. He can't move. He doesn't have anybody to help him into the pool. So actually, what's the point? But there he is. And Jesus spots him. Jesus puts his eyes on him specifically, and he comes over to him specifically, and he says to the man, do you want to get well? Now, the man... If you're reading the text, he doesn't actually answer the question. What he does is he launches into this uh, full-blown complaint about how uh, it's never going to happen anyway, there's nobody to help him to get into the pool, so really what's the point? And Jesus doesn't get it all waylaid. He looks at the man and with a clear, strong voice, he says, get up. 
So this is the English text from the New International Version. It's two words. In Greek, it's one word. It's egere. That's our word. That word means, it means to get up, it means to rise, it means to wake up, it means to get out of your bed or out of your seat, but it also means resurrection. And it is the second word that is used throughout the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels, for resurrection. Now, let me give you a taste of it, just so you can see that I'm not steering you wrong, and then we're going to come back to the scene at the pool in just a moment. But when Jesus sent his disciples out on mission in Matthew chapter 10, do you remember? He told them to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and to raise the dead. That's the word. Matthew 11, John the Baptist is starting to get a little skeptical, a little wondering whether Jesus is really the one that he thought he was, whether he's Messiah or not. And Jesus sends a report back and says, tell John that the dead are raised. It's the same word. On multiple occasions, though the disciples didn't quite get it, Jesus told them that he is going to die and then that he would be raised to life. You guessed it's the same word. Earlier in John's gospel, in chapter 2, when Jesus said that he would destroy the temple and raise it again in three days, It's the same word, but more significantly, John at that point adds a little editorial comment and tells us that the disciples didn't really understand what he was talking about until after he was raised from the dead. It's the very same word. And Lazarus, of course, is this guy who died and was buried for four days and gets raised to life in chapter 11 of John's gospel. And three times over in chapter 12, he is referred to as being raised from the dead. It's the very same word. And then significantly, at the tomb, on that first resurrection Sunday morning, this is the powerful word that is spoken from the angel's lips in Luke 24, a word that has rung out through history ever since, when they spoke to the women and said, he is not here, he has risen. That's our word. So I want to suggest that Jesus at the pool of Bethesda with that crippled man did not use this word lightly. And John, recording it for us in Greek, doesn't use this word lightly. That's a practical word. It's very, very physical. It's very simple. It's very mundane. Get up. But in the gospel records, this word has got overtones. This is a word with baggage. Glorious baggage. It's the word that means resurrection. So get up, Jesus says. Pick up your mat and walk. And the man does. And I want to suggest that this word and this concept rings out throughout the rest of the chapter. So as we uh, begin to look at some of the things that Jesus interacted with the religious leaders about, uh, what was just read for us by Heather, I want you to keep on hearing this word ringing out. Get up! And I want you to have this scene in your mind of the man, all of a sudden his legs getting strengthened and him standing to his feet. I want you to see that playing out behind uh, what we're going to be looking at in the rest of John chapter 5. So, that's where we're going now. The religious leaders um, completely missed the miracle. People often say seeing is believing. Um, 
this story and many stories in the Gospels tell us that that's not the case. The religious leaders saw the man fully healed, but they didn't believe. They missed the miracle. They heard the account, but they didn't believe. They missed the miracle because all they could see was that Jesus had done it on the Sabbath day. And the religious leaders are really, really, really irked. And so Jesus gives them a very basic defense. And so in John 5, verse 17, he says this. My father is always at work to this very day. And I, too, am working. Now, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this same tension over healing on the Sabbath day comes up again and again and again. And Jesus will give different answers different times when he's accused of healing somebody on the Sabbath. So on one occasion, he said that he himself was the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he's the one that's in charge. He's the one that gets to call the shots. He gets to make the choice about what happens on the Sabbath day. On another occasion, he points out that the Sabbath is actually for uh, refreshment, for healing, for release, and that's what he's doing when he heals somebody on the Sabbath day. But here, in John's Gospel, his defense has to do with his relationship with the Father. My Father's working, he's not troubled by the day, and I too am working. So it's a quick, simple response in defense of his actions. But we need to pause for a moment to note the powerful implications and there's two. And the first is that Jesus speaks incredibly personally about having a unique, privileged relationship with God. He calls God my Father in a way that no self-respecting Jew of the day ever would. He is claiming a unique, privileged position as the Son. My Father, I am the Son. And the second thing that we need to note is that he is putting himself on the very same level as God. My father's working, and I'm working. So I originally prepared this sermon about a year and a half ago uh, for the congregation I was serving in Abbotsford. It was just shortly after the Summer Olympics had concluded, and as I was working uh, on my computer, into my news feed came this article from a Canadian running magazine. It was about Andre de Grasse you know, the great Canadian Olympic uh, runner. Uh, and the title was Andre de Grasse leads Canadian track athletes to their best Olympics ever. Amen. Yeah? So imagine if I said to you, Andre de Grasse runs and triumphs in world-class events like the Olympics, and I too run and triumph. You see what I did there? I put myself on the very same level as Andre de Grasse. Be totally daft, but that's the implication of what I'd be saying. That's the implication of what Jesus is saying. Certainly, that's how those who were listening understood it. And so, in the very next verse, John tells us that for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, you've probably heard people say, Jesus never, ever claimed to be God. And 
very technically, very literally, they've got it right. Because Jesus never said, I am God. But did he claim to be God? He certainly did. That's what he's doing right here. That's what he does throughout the Gospels. And certainly the people that were there at the time understood exactly what he was implying. In saying that the Father is always working and I too am working, he was making himself equal with God. And they were ready to kill him for it. And then Jesus goes on. Verses 19 to 20. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. So what we are getting here in this passage are the building blocks of a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity. Now, again, the word Trinity is never used in the Scriptures. But the concept is right here in this passage. It's in so many other passages in the New Testament. And it is a clear implication from Jesus' life and ministry. The Old Testament tells us there is only one true God. And then we encounter Jesus and we understand that within this one true God, there are two distinct persons, Father and Son, distinct and in relationship. And then later we're going to understand there's actually three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. That comes out brilliantly, powerfully, wonderfully in John 14, 15, 16, and other places. And so we get this, this, the building blocks of what was later going to be uh, kind of formalized as a doctrine of the Trinity, and it's all over the New Testament. And then Jesus goes on and he says this, and I want you to listen for our word. John 5, verse 21, Jesus says, For just as the Father raises the dead, I kind of highlighted it so you wouldn't miss it, (laughs) and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. As the Father raises the dead, that's the very word that Jesus used with the man at the pool of Bethesda. Get up. The Father rouses, wakens, raises the dead and gives them life. And Jesus says, I do the same. Do you see, the word that he spoke at the pool reverberates through this passage. I've just demonstrated, Jesus is saying, the power of this word spoken. As the Father raises, so do I. Back when we were looking at John chapter 2, I said that, uh, you know, the the turning of the water into wine, this amazing miracle, was a very practical event. Uh, The groom and his family were incredibly embarrassed, perhaps legally liable for running out of wine, and Jesus steps in and turns water into wine abundantly. But it was more than just a practical event, It it was an acted parable. Because Jesus was declaring that he's the wine giver. He's the winemaker. The new wine of the kingdom was being poured out at that moment. And John editorializes in John chapter 2 and tells us that this was the first of his signs and the disciples saw it and believed. Well, the same thing is going on here in John 5. This is an incredibly practical miracle. This man would have been uh, grateful for the rest of his lifetime. But it's also an acted parable. Jesus is telling us that his word, his voice, has power to give life 
to raise, to raise the dead. And then he goes on, and I want you to listen for his voice and to watch for the life that results from his voice. This is what he says. John 5, 24 to 26, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, he goes on to say, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, the Jews expected resurrection to happen uh, at the end of the age. And when the resurrection happened at the end of the age, the kingdom of God would be established. And the remarkable thing in the ministry of Jesus is that that future age is actually breaking into the world right then, right here, right now. A time is coming and has now come. That's what Jesus says. So the fullness still awaits that future day, but it's spilling backward into our own time right now in the person of Jesus. And so those who hear the voice of the Son of God will hear and live. They will be raised, just like the man at the pool. The fullness of the resurrection still awaits the future. We look forward to it with yearning. With yearning. But... We've already been given the reality of new life in Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. Get up. That's what Jesus says. So, let me ask you. Where do you need new life? Where do you need awakening? Where do you need life from the dead right now? Now, the first answer, obviously, is salvation. We all need it. Because what the Scripture tells us is that all of us are trapped in sin, and sin leads to death. In fact, we are spiritually dead. We desperately need resurrection. And that's what Jesus offers us. Through his death on the cross, he de deals with our sin, our punishment, our brokenness. He triumphs over death, coming back to life, and he offers life to us, life in all its, all its fullness. He offers us salvation from our dead state. And so the first thing to take into account is we need to say yes to Jesus in the life he's offering. And if you are here this morning or listening in this morning and have never said yes to Christ and received the salvation that he brings, today's the day. Don't put it off. He's speaking. But for those of us who have received, there's ongoing need in our lives. There's places of gap and pain and brokenness and crippledness. How about healing of the body? Do you or someone you dearly love need healing? Now, the fullness is going to come in that future day. But we're given the invitation to pray now. We don't presume. We rejoice in the fact that we're going to have that healing then. But we pray for his word, his voice to impact us here and now. I have a dear friend who is um, suffering from thyroid cancer. Remarkably, he's been given the opportunity to have a, an experimental drug 
but we're praying for him that the drug will actually take effect. And we're thankful for doctors, but we know it needs to be the hand of our Lord. Amen? And so we're saying, um, in effect, Jesus, would you speak, get up. What about healing for a relationship that's crippled, that's knocked to the ground, that uh, is on its last legs? I've got one of those in my life at the moment, and I'm praying for healing. What I'm praying, in effect, is, Jesus, would you speak, get up over this relationship? What about dreams and goals that at one point seemed so alive, but perhaps now are just kind of crippled at the side of the pool? Do you need Jesus to speak afresh life into what, into those dreams that he himself gave you? What about a struggle with temptation that keeps on pinning you down, knocking you to the ground? What about um, financial needs? What about the fact that we're in the midst of inflation that keeps going? It's coming down, but it's still there, and, and there's uh, interest rates rising and, and squeezing many, many. And Dear Lord, would you speak? Would you provide in the midst? Where do you feel crippled, winded, knocked down right now? Where do you need the voice of the Son of God to speak? Get up. Get up, Jesus says. He's the only one who's able. And what about for you as a congregation? And I know that uh, it's been a hard season. COVID is a hard season for every church. But you've had the overlay of a dearly loved pastor succumbing to cancer and dying. Showing the way of faith brilliantly, but dying. Then you've had others that were on pastoral staff uh, moving on to other things, and there's, there's that sense of gap. And perhaps, Lord, what's happening? Now, I've got to say, as I've talked with many of you, I hear rumors of hope. And I think, in fact, there's that sense of the Lord speaking, get up, get up, get up. But you look at the need, and you say, dear Lord, would you please take the fullness of your kingdom and speak it backward into time, right here, right now. Your kingdom come, your will be done, right here. Speak the word of life that we so desperately need. Get up, Jesus says, because he's the only one who's able. So it does speak backward into this place, right here, right now, but wonderfully, it is for that future day. So Jesus says in John 5, 28 to 29, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, because of what Jesus is saying in this gospel and throughout the gospels and what the apostles themselves pick up on, we know that uh, those who have done good literally means those who have believed. And so in the very next chapter, uh, those gathered around who have uh, experienced the feeding of the 5,000, they say to Jesus, you know, what are the works that God requires of us? And Jesus says to them in John 6, 29, he says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. 
And so those who have done good are defined as those who have believed in the one that God has sent. And we can interpret in that last line, those who have done evil, to mean those who have not believed. And back in John 3, verse 18, after speaking that amazing verse, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, verse 16, in verse 18, Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. The issue in goodness and evil has to do with whether we place faith in Jesus or not. Resurrection results. And this now is the second word. This is the Anastasis word, Anastasia. And I've used here the translation of the uh, ESV because it brings the word out uh, clearly and simply. Resurrection to eternal life will come about for all who have received Jesus, who have believed in his name. But resurrection to judgment will come about for any who have refused or neglected or put off believing. So don't put it off. If never before, put the weight of your life into Jesus' hands today. So there's one final scene from the story of the man at the pool, which I find very, very striking. The religious leaders, uh, as we've said, have been completely irked by the fact that Jesus has performed this miracle on the Sabbath. What was he thinking? Why would he do that? They're completely upset. And they go after the formerly lame man, accusing him of Sabbath breaking. And their intense focus on Sabbath breaking becomes a complete distraction for them and for the man himself. And the man in self-defense puts the blame on Jesus. Now, at that point in the story, he doesn't even know who Jesus is. He doesn't know Jesus' name. But he puts the blame on him, and in so doing, distracted by the religious leader's accusation, he reports to the Jewish leaders what Jesus had said to him, and he doesn't get it quite right. This is what he says. The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Do you notice? Do you notice what he missed? What Jesus said was, get up, get up, pick up your mat. He missed the most important part. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. The Son of God is still speaking. His voice is still sounding. And that future day will bring the fullness of resurrection and life eternal. Amazing. But the power of his voice is breaking backward into our own present circumstance right here, right now. So let's allow him to speak. I'd like to lead us in prayer. And I've got three things I want us to focus on. So let me just lead you through. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And the first thing I want to focus on is for any one person, perhaps, uh, here today or listening online who has never yet said yes to Jesus. And you need to know that the voice of the Son of Man is speaking for you. Get up. Receive life. And so I want to invite you to be so bold as to receive what Jesus is offering. And you can do it very simply by just praying and saying, 
yes, Lord, I acknowledge that sin is part of my life, as it is for everyone. I'm spiritually dead, left to my own devices. I acknowledge it. And secondly, I believe, I believe that your voice has power to raise the dead. And that when you died on the cross, you took my sin upon yourself. I believe. And thirdly, I receive. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your life. I receive you as my Savior. I receive you as my Lord. So let me just lead in that prayer, and you in the quiet of your own heart can pray it if you choose. So Lord Jesus, we would say, uh, yes, we acknowledge that sin is a problem. And because of it, we're spiritually dead, left to our own devices. And Lord Jesus, I say, I believe. I believe that your voice has the power and your work on the cross has paved the way so that I could be forgiven. I believe and I receive. I receive the power of your voice I receive the power of your gift. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your life. I receive you as my Savior, as my Lord. And let me just say that if you've prayed that today, would you please communicate it with someone? It will strengthen the choice you've made. Tell me afterwards. uh, Send an email to the church office. uh, Tell a friend. Strengthen the choice you've made. And now personally uh, and individually, let's reflect. Where do we find ourselves uh, crippled, winded, withered, uh, knocked down at the side of the pool, unable to move? Are there issues of healing or of body, healing of relationship, uh, dreams and goals that need to be revived, a temptation that needs to be overcome, practical needs that need meeting, And I invite you just to put those in Jesus' hands at the moment and to ask him to speak. Get up. Get up. So, dear Lord Jesus, would you please speak into our lives at the points that we need it? We look to you. And then thirdly, we want to pray for this congregation that we love And we are aware of places where we need the intervention of our Lord in a fresh way, with fresh life. And so, Lord Jesus, thank you for the hope you are giving. Would you please intensify it? And Lord, where we are very aware of needs, would you please speak? Speak life. Speak get up. And we pray that Granville would step into new days of your blessing and your grace. And we pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.